This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle, a writer, book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an educator and engineer and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today on the STEM Read Podcast, we're talking about inquiry. Inquiry. It's not just for science anymore. Bing. Bing. Our guests today are social studies teacher Zach Gilbert and author M.T. Anderson. Kristen, you've been friends with Zach Gilbert for a while, and I don't think you've ever told him your dark secret. I know. I've tried to keep it from him. Do you want to reveal it right now? (sighs) Okay. This is tough for me. I know. I hated history class. (gasps) Don't tell him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been I've been carrying that guilt. It just, just feels so good to lift it. I know. Let it let it all out. <sighs> I I liked the idea of history. In my high school, we had a really great history class. Our high school was on Fort Beggs Drive, so the teachers had students research what the fort was and then rebuild one of the watchtowers using methods and tools of the time period. In another unit, they had students research the Civil War and figure out what food the soldiers ate, and then they actually made the food that the soldiers ate, like hardtack, and they had a Civil War banquet type of thing. That sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. I wasn't in those classes, though. Um, I was in a class where we read the history book, we did the homework, was all the questions at the end of the chapter, and then we mostly watched Last of the Mohicans. (laughs) Just stay alive. I will find you. Find you. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I hated history is because most of my classes were like that too, except for in in one, one of my history classes, we played a trading game. So we kind of, it's like colonial America, we all started trading goods, and all I can remember is that you needed yeast and molasses to make rum. And that's really <laughs> that's all I remember. important for every middle schooler it, to know. It has taken me far. <laughs> what did you learn, little Kristen? How to make rum. I need more yeast. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, ho, ho. Has that, um, has that helped you in your adult life, in, in college and career? Yes. No. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Well, today we're going to share our love-hate history of history. We're talking to Zach Gilbert, a middle school social studies teacher at Thomas Medcalf School at Illinois State University. He's a National Geographic Geo-Inquiry Ambassador, a champion of esports and schools, and the host of the Ed Gamer podcast. We're going to talk to Zach about incorporating inquiry into the social studies classroom, and then we're going to interview M.T. Anderson, author of Feed, The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing, Traitor to the Nation, and the newly released Landscape with Invisible Hand. M.T. Anderson is going to share his thoughts on everything from writing about the anxieties of the modern world to animal sacrifice, because you need a good animal sacrifice story in every podcast, right? Absolutely. (laughs) All of that is ahead on the STEM Read Podcast. So I'm going to admit something to you that I've not admitted to you before. Oh, no. I never liked social studies. Oh. It was not my favorite class, especially in middle school. But in my defense, my social studies class was a lot of the memorization. So how are you changing social studies for your students that moves it from the memorization to something that is more engaging and gets students interested in learning? So I've come up with something called flow, which is it's fun learning in others. And from teaching, you know, for as long as I have, there's been three major kind of uh, pedagogies or, or just thoughts and theories and, and philosophies that have been thrown my way. And, and and one of them is that, you know, you need to find what find out what the kids enjoy. And so that's that's the fun part, uh, enjoyment part. The learning part, the L is for learning, and it's it's understanding what the students need to understand what they're learning. You need to have the picture of the puzzle in order to complete the puzzle. But the learning has to be meaningful, and it has to be um, have to have some type of emotional connection to it. That's where we kind of get into inquiry: is that you know creating essential questions that lead to deeper understanding, but also make connections to the students. And then the last part is others and uh, being able to work with and learn from others. Most students, most adults have a difficult time knowing how to work within a group. And so to make them feel like they have something important to share, 
that they have knowledge that others do not have. There's something that they're able to give to the to the group. When you see good classrooms, you see collaboration. You see students are understanding what they're learning, and you see that they're enjoying what they're doing. And so when those three things can happen, you've got, you've got a, you have a winning combination. When your students are doing inquiry, are these questions that you posed them, or are these questions that they came up with themselves? There's some, I always have a few ideas of what questions would be really good, and I even have those in my scope and sequence, but... I always want my students to have input to give and share uh, their ideas. In June, Mike Jones, a, a fellow teacher here at, uh, and you know who he is, um, fellow teacher here at Thomas Metcalf, we went out to National Geographic and uh, they sent us out there for a summer institute, which was uh, amazing. And they taught us what's called geo inquiry process. What's interesting about about that. And what I'm seeing across the board is that every subject area is, is the new buzzword that is, is inquiry. And even art education, theater education, whatever it is, it's, it's all about inquiry. So we have to actually create a project for National Geographic. What I'm going to be starting with tomorrow with my sixth graders is that we have um, something that a lot of schools don't have, which is called outdoor education. We're training them a little bit within fifth and sixth grade how to be out in nature. And I'm going to have, I'm going to start leading a discussion on what's important about outdoor ed. What are the things that you like? What are the things that you don't like? Are there things that you want other people to know about? We've already taught a little bit with about the geo inquiry skills from National Geographic, which is you ask, uh, you collect, you visualize, you create, and you act. National Geographic is wonderful about it is that, yeah, they, they ask questions, they collect data, and then they start visualizing and creating. Well, with National Geographic, it's, it's pictures and videos. But all of that is done so you can act upon uh, what the story is about, whether it's something in, with wildlife or the environment or whatever it might be. And so I'm, what I'm going to do tomorrow and really open it up to the kids is, okay, what is there something about outdoor ed that we can act upon, that we can share with others, and maybe they can act upon it as well? And really trying to open it up and, and, and see where they go. Like I said, I already have an idea in my head. And one idea, one of the questions I have in my head is, should outdoor ed be taught at all schools? But I don't know where the kids are going to take me tomorrow with this. For a lot of teachers, that scares them because it is, it's out of their control. But you have to understand that if it's something the students really like and they enjoy and they are invested in, then it's something they are going to re- that, that they will remember for the rest of their lives because it's their project. Is there a difference between driving questions and essential questions? You know, essential questions for me are, um, you know, if I'm studying a unit, you know, like Mesopotamia, I have essential questions that help me understand the learning targets for that unit. Those are the essential questions. Now, the thing is that, as, as we know, especially as a science teacher told me, the scientific method is, is garbage, um, is, is in its true form. It's, oh it's one of those things that it should cycle. There should be a constant in, in looking at data and, and modifying and changing uh, information. So for me, I'm always looking at those essential questions. I'm always listening to my students and modifying those essential questions um, to match with what my, my classroom and uh, the unit that I'm teaching. So that's the way I look at essential questions. Those big, hairy questions, those wicked problems. So here's a, here's a big one, but it kind of fits within <laughs> a unit that I study. You know, um, basically judging agriculture. It's in, I'm trying to put it in a, in a question form. Is agriculture good for the earth? Ooh, see, that is a big question that would spark a lot of back and forth. Essential questions shouldn't have an easy answer. It shouldn't be Googleable. I mean, it's not, you know, one of those things that, you know, there's just, there's not one correct answer. Fifth and sixth grade students, are they okay with there not being one right answer or is that difficult for them? It does take a little bit of training and kind of get them out of their mindset to really, number one, question things. Um, I want kids to question. I always want them to question and ask why. Um, so getting them in that mindset, does it does take a little bit of training. But surprisingly, they do handle it well. So one of the questions that we get is, why would you talk about social studies on a STEM read show or at a STEM oh read event? Yeah. So Is this STEM? <laughs> yeah. So, so what do you think about how social studies relates to the content areas and relates to, you know, these driving ideas of STEM and STEAM that we're seeing so much? Social studies gives 
meaning and purpose and structure to all that we do as humans. The way I look at it, social studies is everything. Now, I know I get a science teacher. Science is everything. Yes, science is yeah, <laughs> molecules. Okay, atoms, molecules, whatever. Okay, that, that's great. But it, it's really how we interpret what we have done in the past. And whether that's uh, yesterday or just this morning or whatever it might be to a thousand years ago, that's why I love teaching social studies because I can integrate science and, and, and math and uh, literature and I can integrate everything because it's all part of studying of who we are. That to me, because I'm a, I'm a geek in so many areas, that's what makes social studies fun for me. So I think I had a poster in my office that summed it up. Science lets you clone the dinosaur and humanities helps you ask if you should. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I like that. <laughs> ah. It like all that. goes back to so, Jurassic you know, Park. It comes back then... to dinosaurs. You just heard our interview with Zach Gilbert, middle school social studies teacher and National Geographic Geo-Inquiry Ambassador. Up next is M.T. Anderson. Kristen, I am very excited for our next interview with author M.T. Anderson. The first book I read by M.T. Anderson was Whales on Stilts, which is completely bananas. <laughs> it's about a young girl who discovers that her father's company is run by a half-man, half-whale who wants to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> you you had me at half-man, half-whale. Half half yeah. <laughs> So uh, one of the things that I really like about that book is that it had like a fake teacher's guide and, and like reflection questions. <laughs> like, what would you do if your father's boss was making laser beams and stilts for whales? Stuff like that. It was really funny. <laughs> and then the second book that I read was Feed. And Feed is a book about the internet being beamed directly into your brain. So even your thoughts and your dreams are commercials for products that you should buy. I loved it. My husband worked at a bookstore at the time, so we just bought every copy of Feed that we could, and we would hand them out for, I think, like 15 years now. I've been just handing out copies That's of Feed to That's how I got my people. copy. Yeah. Is, you're like, you need to read this. <laughs> okay. And yeah, it's fantastic. M.T. Anderson has won a National Book Award, a Michael L. Prince Award, and many other honors for his works on books such as Feed, The Astonishing Life of Octavian nothing and symphony for the city of the dead his latest book is landscape with invisible hand here's our interview with mt anderson on the stem read podcast we're really interested in origin stories and what brought you to where you are in your life today so what were you like as a student oh i mean i was a pretty good student uh, i mean i guess i was totally fascinated by how the world worked and therefore teachers who could engage that, I really responded to, you know? I mean, um, we think of uh, learning in this country sometimes as if it's this big drag, you know what I mean? Like, oh, oh, we're going to find out about the world, <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, like, I always think about, like, what, what five-year-old has that attitude? You know what I mean? Like, little kids are asking questions and are fascinated by the world to an almost irritating degree. You know, and that is that's actually great. That is wonderful. And I feel like the best teachers are the ones who can reinvigorate that sense of wonder in how the world works 10, 15 years later. And so when did you know that you wanted to be an author? Uh, I think when I was very young, I always loved to tell stories. Uh, so, I mean, I really wanted to be from the time I was a little kid. And what books influenced you as you were growing up? Uh, well, I think that some of the ones were um, like uh, the Moomin Troll books by Tove Janssen were big with me when I was like eight, nine years old. I really loved science fiction when I was, you know, 10 and older. In particular, Ray Bradbury, like the Martian Chronicles, which is sort of like simultaneously a science fiction book about the colonization of Mars, but also is really about the colonization of the Americas. You know, I mean, it's clearly a book that is set on Mars and yet about America. And um, even as a kid, I found that totally fascinating. Well, I think that comes into play in your work a lot. So you write a lot of satires, um, such as Feed and Burger Wuss and Landscape with Invisible Hands. So why do you think you approach the world in that way? I don't know. I mean, I guess um, part of it might be because I was trained on things like that Ray Bradbury book and other books where... Yeah, you're dealing with a fantastical science fiction situation, but at the same time, 
what is really driving the plot is an anxiety about the world that we already live in. So for me, for Feed example, so Feed, it's this book in which everyone has a, um, a chip inside their head that gives them instant internet access. But at the same time, it also means that there is a constant wash of advertising going through all of their thoughts. Um, so that book, for example, a lot of the technologies I describe in it, when I wrote that book, they were, they were just kind of like science fiction jokes. I mean, it was 2001 I was writing. And none of the technology to sort of transfer, transfer thought into digital code existed. Whereas now we're really starting to approach that in, in various ways. And AI is really pumping forward in a way that is surprising. But at the same time, I think what interested me was not the technological reality of that and not the fact that that technological reality has become so, uh, so palpable in the 16, 17 years since I wrote it. Instead, it's the fact that already in 2001, I felt like I had the experience of the voice of advertising speaking in my head already. I didn't need a chip in there because it was already there. Like already when I talked about my dreams and my aspirations and how I pictured myself, what was guiding my thoughts already were all of these series of advertisements going back to the time I was a little kid. You know, we're trained in some ways to see the world through the, the you know, this media. And we come to accept it as reality without really questioning it. And that was already true. So in a weird way for me, like the metaphorical thing or the, you know, symbolic thing of having this voice in your head was more important than the reality of the technology. And that's true, I think, for a lot of my work. So do you think that 15 years down the line, are, do you have more anxiety about how it's progressed? Or do you think you kind of exercised that through the book? No, well, I mean, I, I have anxieties. I think that I've moved on. You know, back then I was more worried about, you know, like the decay of the English language, which especially at that point, there was statistical evidence showing that words were leaving the English language much faster than they had actually entered it in for the Elizabethan period when the language had a big uh, period of growth. And that, you know, it worried me like, oh, what is, what's going to happen if we become inarticulate? And now, in a way, my my concerns have changed in in the intervening time. And, you know, and I, for example, have totally gotten used to uh, things like um, texting, which in the book appears as this sort of like, uh, you know, this sort of mental chat that people can do. So I guess my, my fears have shifted. I'm more worried nowadays about things like what will AI look like in 20 or 30 years? What challenges does that pose to us as a race? What is it going to look like when part of the human race can be enhanced in some of the ways I talked about in the book, and a lot of the human race will not be able to afford being enhanced? What is that going to mean for our, us as a society? Um, what's it going to mean for employment when most human jobs can be done by AI faster than they can be done by humans. That sounds like a, a beautiful image. It sounds like a utopia. We're all going to be sitting around by the poolside drinking, you know, big drinks while airships fly over us engaged on robotic missions. But of course, it's not that simple because there still is going to be this question of how do you make a living to participate in that economy? You know, unless capitalism changes, the changes in technology are not going to make up the difference in how human life will alter. Yeah, I think I think that that's really interesting how you're talking about AI, especially, you know, AI is not in landscape with invisible hand necessarily. So are, are you one of those people who are in the camp that AI is one of the greatest threats that we face as a culture? Well, I think that there are two possible threats from AI. One of them is very likely to come about. The mm -hmm. other one is questionable, but nonetheless a real threat now. So the two being, in the short term, there is the question of what are we going to do as overwhelmingly human jobs, blue-collar jobs already, white-collar jobs, you know, to some extent, and more and more as time goes on, these kinds of jobs can be done by computers. And yet at the same time, um, we still have an economy based on the idea that you have to work to have an income. 
what is the, what's going to happen when there's no labor for us left to do? And that, I think, is very real. I think that that is already happening, and it is only going to get worse. And in fact, you know, Landscape with Invisible Hand does have some of that stuff in it. Like, the one of the problems in that book is these aliens come, and they donate all of this technological know-how to the human race, and what essentially happens is suddenly the whole human economy falls apart because it's based on the idea of labor and reward. And, you know, how do you do that when suddenly you don't need people to do any labor? So that's the lesser of the two worries is a kind of economic collapse and a widening of already this huge, huge class difference that we have uh, in this country and in a lot of countries around the world. Um, but the second one, which is more dangerous and total, but at the same time slightly less certain, is the question of um, AI actually outstripping human capacity for thought, which many think, like Ray Kurzweil, and I, I you know, think it's going to happen by, by 2020, or sorry, 2050, that you know, um, human intelligence will lag behind the intelligences we've created. And for the first time, we will no longer be the most intelligent species on this planet. What is that going to mean? Um, and I do think that that is a real problem. And I think that um, a lot of programmers who talk about it take a very short-sighted, insouciant view of how that can be controlled. I mean, sure, it can be controlled, but you have to think about it way in advance because, you know, algorithmically things can shift without you noticing um, very, very rapidly. Yeah, and I think, you know, you bring up a point that has been echoed throughout science fiction, certainly back to H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. You have this, you get this division where you have people who don't work <laughs> and they become basically stupid, I guess, is the, the easiest way to say it. Or less yeah. personal value, I, <laughs> more so, complacent. Yeah, so so as someone who writes satire and who writes science fiction, how do you see your role in culture as are you a philosopher? Are you a, you know, do you herald things that are to come? Are you a voice of warning? Well, I mean, incidentally, um, I should say that the Time Machine, H.G. Wells is the Time Machine um, and War of the Worlds were huge, uh, you know, things for me, too, as a kid. Um, I have to admit, not originally in their H.G. Uh, Wells form, but in the form of classic comics, which um, did both of them uh -huh. um, as uh, in comic book form. But nonetheless, like when I was old enough then to read the books, I read them. And, you know, once again, like it's interesting that I was always uh, drawn to things that painted the future world, uh, which, sorry, painted the present world through the guise of something that might happen in the future. Um, and, um, and yeah, the, the time machine, it makes total sense now when we look at it, the way that um, in the future, the ruling class, as it were, are not super intelligent beings in that book. Instead, they're sort of just, you know, these kind of like playthings that sit around on riverbanks giggling, <laughs> totally unaware of the world that's all of all the technological stuff that supports them. And uh, it, that really confused me as a kid. And it's taken me a long time to understand what Wells was really getting at with that and uh, and like his social commentary, um, which is very apt for England right around 1900 and the kind of the class divisions that were happening there and the, the anger of the working class that was looking at the, the leisured class and saying, wait, why are we doing all this stuff for them? Why are we why are we agreeing to this? Um what was your question? <laughs> uh, so, so what's your role then? You know, is oh, what's my role? Right, yeah. Right. Okay. So, um, obviously, just to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> That's so, okay. <laughs> um, my role is, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that I really do see myself as someone who is trying to, uh, both for myself when I'm writing these books and for my readers when they read them, I'm trying to kind of like say. Let's use these, this symbol or this metaphor of a weird world to displace ourselves just enough from what we know so that we can then see the situation we're in uh, in a different way and realize, wait a second, there's all sorts of stuff that we're missing. We are not looking at the whole picture because usually we are cocooned by this sense of normality and we don't ask questions about it. I mean, 
you look at what happens before um, a, you know large disasters when we even when we know that the disaster is on its way and there's a large proportion of the population that just tries to deny it and you know I do that I'm not saying that this is you know I'm I have superpowers or something we tend as people to try to say look let's just not worry about it and keep doing things the way that we're going to do them the way, we, the way we've always done and things will work out right but of course that's not true things don't always work out right and preparation makes sense preparation will make us stronger so i guess i am definitely uh the kind of writer who wants people to say oh wait a second you know i've read feed and now i see advertising in a different way you know i've read landscape with invisible hand now i'm thinking in a different way about uh you know the way that we all are having to sculpt our lives online like a work of art or whatever you know yeah absolutely well and even in uh suburb beyond the stars you had people literally being cocooned in their suburban homes so. <laughs> right yeah. yeah i'm not a subtle writer I, say. I'm, I, I can't claim to be uh, a greatly mysterious writer yeah, <laughs> so so let's talk about landscape with invisible hands so so what's the anxiety i guess behind that one um, well, I mean, a lot of things. I mean, I think that the I began it thinking about kind of like uh, colonization and uh, and how then people who have been colonized in one way or another represent themselves. Like, what does it mean to be uh, to have another foreign power demanding that you be a certain way and that essentially saying, I'm only going to recognize you as long as you do this particular set of things which plays into my fantasies about what you're supposed to be like um so it's a very i mean it's about a very human experience and that happens internationally it happens even within the the borders of this country um and then as i started to write it and really explore it i started to think well wait a second you know the teenage years are these years when in any case we are so desperate to try to to define ourselves like that's the big work of of being a teenager is you're like I, I i don't know exactly what i'm like but i know i want to be like something and i feel some things very fiercely and i want to follow them up you know but if, on the other hand what does it mean to be part of a group or not part of a group or whatever if i stick out through my interests and so you know and so i, I think a lot of the book then started to accumulate all those all those ideas of what does it mean to define yourself as a teenager especially right now when um you are doing all of that work of creating an identity in public because you have the social media where you are having to to broadcast your um you know are you uh going out with someone or are you not going out with someone or are you talking with someone or not talking with someone or are you you know all of the nuances of that like uh who are you hanging out with are your friends inviting you to things are you doing things that are more fun than your friends? Are you stuck at home when they're doing something that looks more fun? And then even tougher, all these questions like, how do you make what you're doing, which is actually incredibly boring, look interesting? <laughs> um, and, you know, you know, as adults, we're doing this, too. We're doing this on, on good old Facebook, the uh, horse and cart version of social media. You know, we still are trying to produce lives that look interesting and, uh, and you know, doing the humble brag. Uh, like I have a I have a friend in the literary world who is uh, a Facebook friend who is so guilty of the humble brag. He's always saying things like, "Oh God, so nervous about having to be on stage alone with Margaret Atwood tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, really, dude? Yeah. But if you're you admit you're doing the humble brag, like, sorry to humble brag, but <laughs> yeah, I'm so right. nervous. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That would be better. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like, what does it mean to, like, to have a relationship with someone, like, you know, a, a romantic relationship, sexual relationship, whatever, that is formed in the public eye? And therefore, like in the case of this kid in this book, it falls apart. And you have to decide, how do we make our breakup public? How do we do this that saves face? What if one of us doesn't want to save face? What if, you know, I mean, like... It's excruciating, all that stuff. I'm so glad I didn't have to deal with it as a teen. I was already a big enough mess as I was without having to make it public. <laughs> oh, I couldn't yeah. imagine if we had social media as a teenager. It would 
Yeah, I'm very thankful that I'm you not You wouldn't be up. on the school board right now. No, probably not. Your shenanigans documented. <laughs> um. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and like what it's doing is taking all of the things that used to be intimate and making them public. So the line between the most intimate and the most public has actually broken down. And, um, and you know, I mean, kids learn to navigate that in a way that we did not because we were – it wasn't necessary for us. So that's the other thing. Kids are resilient. Teens – find out you know they figure out how to do that they create a society that can do that but at the same time it is i think very very confusing for them yeah and i i think that in social media it's also you want to be positive you know Mm -hmm. i when people are talking about somebody's surgery you're like oh really why'd you have to tell me that i want you know i just wanted to come on see some cute pictures of cats and babies and jump off and feel good about right. myself. Yeah, I have friends yeah, we call the... Yeah, a friend of, a, of an orangutan. <laughs> <laughs> we have the Eeyore friends. It's like everything they post is like, oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Poor right, me. Exactly. <laughs> like... Right. But then, they, you know, why not? Like, they actually are, like, having their liver removed or something. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? So, I mean, like... Like, are they supposed to continue to be with me? You know, like, so that's one of the that's one of the things. Like you, you know, the kid in, in landscape with invisible hand is an artist, and in a sense, I feel like all of us to become artists in that we have to sculpt our lives for an invisible public that's always watching us now. Right. And I I think that's a really interesting uh, theme that flows throughout the book is you have Adam with his still lifes and then you have Adam and Chloe with their, uh, you know, feed courtship. And then you've got Buddy Guy and his primitive chainsaw carvings. And they're all trying to show that they're, you know, truthful, like say something about who they are, what their world is like. So how do you navigate that in your own work? Um, truth versus fantasy and what you want to communicate? Well, I think that one of the answers to that is like almost um, aesthetic, which is, uh, you know, like um, when you read something that is all weird, it seems not as weird as when you read something that has elements of reality mixed with the strangeness. Like when I, you know, a thing that was very uh, seminal for me was watching Twin Peaks. You know, now they have the the new series, but the original uh, Twin Peaks back in the late 80s, early 90s, like that was huge for me watching that. And the thing that really struck me was the reason that seems so bizarre is that along with all of the like, you know, like dream giants and talking horse, horses and, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, all of the, 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 the dark lodge or whatever it was called, all that stuff, which was bizarre, what made it strange was like the family dinners and the kids practicing the piano and playing the trumpet or, you know, that kind of thing, like Mm -hmm. the small, normal suburban touches. That was what then made it strange. Um, If it had only been peculiarity, it would have been unhinged and uninteresting. So I think that what comes naturally to me are those moments where you take what is known and what is strange and you bind them together. And those, to me, are the really powerful moments in literature in general. And, and in, in, for example, when you go to another country and things look in some ways very alien, but then, so, you know, you notice that everyone is wearing, like, uh, Nike shirts or something. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like, that's what makes it odd is the elements of familiarity amidst the scene of, like, you know, like, uh, I'm just thinking, I guess, uh, in particular, the, the thing that flashed to my mind is, going to an animal sacrifice in um in nepal and everyone is dressed like they would for like a uh, to go to a soccer game here but you know you're seeing a um uh, a young a young bull killed in front of you instead um and and offered to uh, a particular set of gods so you know like in a way the strangeness is the unity the the bringing together of what is familiar and unfamiliar and for them um, you know, coming to the U.S., there'd be a similar feeling, but it would be around a, a different set of, of objects. So, you know, we all have to see each other in this world through this weird half language of things that are half known. And that's how we make these connections and understand each other is through the, the commonalities we have, even though so much of our lives is strange to each other. 
I love that uh, your first, the thing that just flashed into your mind was an animal sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, no, I went, I, I um, yeah, sorry. Well, I guess I was Context. thinking of like one of the more, one of the more bizarre experiences I've ever been at. You know what I mean? Like, it was one of the strangest things I've ever been present at, from my point of view. You know what I mean? Though yeah. it was quite routine from their point of view. Yeah. You know? Where do you go from animal sacrifice? I was to say, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> and done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, your books cover a wide range of topics. So how do you choose your projects and what is the writing process like in books? Um, you know, you have things like Jasper Dash and the Flame Pits of Delaware, and then you have Landscape with Invisible Hand. Is it a similar process or is it completely different? Oh, um, you know, it, each book, uh, the genesis is a little bit different. And I guess the only thing they have in common is one peculiar idea that just sits with me and then starts to, you know, like accumulate stuff that connects with it. And I guess for me, it's oftentimes uh, a concept that then works with characters as opposed to being like some people I think think of a, the human situation first, you know, like, oh, I, I really want to write about a, a mother who is suffering the death of their child or something like that that is not necessarily the way that i go into it i tend to like with jasper dash and the flame bits of delaware i was like okay let's think about all of the dumb things we say about other countries in adventure novels you know like <laughs> that there are dinosaurs in south america or in africa or that kind of thing you know like all of the kind of ways that we make other countries into fantasy worlds just because of our ignorance of what they're actually like what if someone did that to some place in the United States, what would that feel like? If um, what what if we took some place and I chose Delaware just because I know that no one has really ever been there? Um, <laughs> I said, what if suddenly I took all of the cliches that we tell about other countries and applied them to the state of Delaware and made Delaware this land of like fantastic adventure, where there are these you know mountains where lizard people live and there are you know yeah like pterodactyls going through the air and there are the cities are full of like wizards and that kind of thing. So, you know, so there's, it's like a high concept thing. So it's like, once I had that idea, then everything followed on from that. And I kept on thinking of like funny stuff I could do with Delaware. And uh, then I actually <laughs> went to Delaware. Well, what happened was I, um, I wrote in the book, I said, look, um, you know, I, I don't want to get anything wrong. So if, you are from Delaware or know someone from Delaware and you find that my description does not fit what you know, please write immediately to the following address and state your grievances. <laughs> and then I gave the address for the governor of Delaware's house. Because <laughs> it was like, it's his problem, not mine. He's the one who's in charge He of has a perception problem. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So I got a letter back from the governor of Delaware saying, you know, like, well, I don't know. It was the only state. It's the only letter I've ever received from a state governor in which he's called me Buster. <laughs> and he said, he said, this is really a very normal state. Come on down and uh, see the state. You know, meet, meet me at the governor's mansion. You know, we'll talk it over. So I went down to <laughs> Delaware. And in fact, it turned out to be incredibly bizarre. Like this is a while ago, but your adult listeners will rem remember this this moment when the one of the um, one of the people running for uh, Senate, I think, from uh, from Delaware, had to begin all of her television commercials by this with this disclaimer: "Hi, I am not a witch." You know what I mean, like. <laughs> What other state do you have to say that you are not part of, a, of an evil witchcraft oven before you can then do your pitch for why you should be elected? You was know? that her platform? Was the other person actually a witch and this was going to help no, her? No, no, no. What happened? I, like, this was a, like a big scandal at the time. It was so dumb. You know what I mean? Like, it was really a, an inventive scandal anyway. But someone came up with the fact that as a teenager, she had supposedly been part of some kind of like witch coven or something which i mean who knows what that even means when you're 18 years old or whatever you know like whether it's a joke or whatever but anyway it was being used against her um wow. so she had to then denounce it you know in public so that's how she started her ads by saying she was not a witch <laughs> thus um, losing that side that, of the, the witch population. i know yeah, right, right. right out the window <laughs> It would have been great, actually. I was just thinking, if the, the 
uh, if she had said that at the beginning of the ad while hovering above the city like on a broomstick, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like that would have been, in fact, the modern political, uh, you know, equivalent. Like you just make the lie as obvious as possible. I am not a witch. I'm just actually uh, cleaning up the sky with my broom. Right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so okay, so so contrast that then with like Octavia nothing or landscape with invisible hand. So with landscape with invisible hand, the similarity is once again I had this idea, like okay, what if Earth was sort of like uh, what we used to call a third world country? in a economic empire that belongs to someone else? What if we're not the ones who are the center of the whole galactic empire like we always seem to be in television uh, series and things? What if instead we are the, the kind of like middle of nowhere podunk state that is just kind of used for resource extraction by the aliens and, you know, they've made us part of their economic empire? Um, what would that feel like to have all of Earth be so irrelevant to the main things that are going on in the galaxy? So that was the starting point. And then once I thought of that, like all these other things started to uh, accumulate and attach themselves to that idea. So, you know, I mean, in, in that way, it's very similar in that I have this idea first and then suddenly like the character becomes clarified. Well, wait a second. I need a teen who is going to feel the impact of that. Wait, what, what about an artist who's trying to kind of like depict the earth? You know, so the whole book is told in... The, so this kid wants to be a landscape painter and a designer of uh, virtual reality environments for games and things. So he's trying to kind of like depict the American landscape and kind of learn how to how to create environments in that way. But he's doing it while there are all of these alien incursions, like all these weird alien buildings are appearing all over the place and that kind of thing. So I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is have it told entirely through his drawings of what's happening to the world so that I get his point of view of what it feels like to be a weird province in someone else's empire. So, you know, once again, all I'm saying is I took a central idea and then really worked on it to see where it would lead me. So what kind of research do you do in the writing process? Well, for this, for this particular book, uh, for Landscape Invisible Hand, I didn't do very much at all because once again, in a, sort of like feed, in some ways... I don't want to understand the technology too well because I think one of the real dangers of the way we live now is we rely desperately on all of this technology and all of these networks of various kinds, shipping networks, you know, data networks, everything that we do not understand at all. We don't know how they work. They might as well be magic. I might as well be sitting here talking into a oblong piece of rock. Um, instead of a, uh, a um, cell phone, for all I understand about what's actually happening when I talk and why it is you can hear me when you're sitting in Chicago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's as if it's magic. So in a way, it's almost important for me to not understand too well how these things work, because the characters have to be ignorant, because ignorance is part of the way we're living now. We live at once in the most sophisticated civilization that has ever existed, and in one where we do not we could not explain how any of this works if anyone really pressed us uh, to explain. You know, if we went back to caveman times and suddenly we were like, don't worry, we can show you how to use cell phones. Come on. We would end up just walking around with pieces of slate in our hand yelling. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, um, and beyond the fact that, for example, as technology progresses, we see the, uh, the population in many ways running away from that science. And so I forget what it is. It's either a fourth or a fifth of the American public believes that the sun revolves around the earth. We see almost a kind of angry rejection of science, even as all of us take for granted the fact that the cell phone and the refrigerated truck create a way of life for us. So a book that you haven't mentioned yet, but um, <laughs> from um, um, <laughs> just uh, so my Octavian Nothing books. Um, which are set in the 18th century. They're sort of like gothic novels set at the time of the American Revolution. They are based on a sort of a, an insane society of scientists who are involved in various experiments, some of which are really, really ugly, ugly experiments that, that turn disastrous in the course of the book. And for that, I actually did a huge amount of research 
on 18th century science. And it is totally fascinating the way that, that the whole concept of science and how it is pursued is different in the 18th century from now. And that is its own incredible topic, just because the uh, it's so eye-opening to see a world in which they do not see scientific discipline as being something that is different from, say, religion or art or, or any of the humanities, when, as it were, STEM is always STEAM. You know what I mean? I think one of the most haunting parts of Octavian Nothing, I was looking at it, I've got it sitting with me, is at the actually in the epilogue where you're talking about um, if this were a fantasy novel, all these people would rise up, they would overthrow both regimes, and they would found a new nation. And that is not what happens in reality. So I, I think that's interesting and heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, we want things to turn out a certain way. And obviously, one of the reasons we read literature is for the consolations it offers in a world that oftentimes does not turn out the way we want it to. But it's also important to acknowledge when, uh, when we fail to do the right thing. You know what I mean? It's important for America to acknowledge its crimes and the way that they have contributed to this nation's success so that we can move on and uh, become great in the future in the way that we want to. We have to recognize our patterns in the past so that we don't repeat them. You said on the Candlewick podcast, um, if a book doesn't change the author, how do you expect it to change the reader? So what book changed you the most and how did telling your stories shape who you are? Well, I absolutely think that the books that changed me the most that I, that I wrote were Feed, the Octavian Nothing books, which together, those Octavian Nothing books took me six years to research and write. And then my Shostakovich book, which is a nonfiction book about the city of Leningrad in Russia during World War II, which took about five years to research and write. Those absolutely changed me in all sorts of ways. A lot of it just sort of like making it an emotional reality to recognize the way that people are able to be cruel to each other and ignore the fact that they're being cruel and ignore how destructive they're being. And I think it's important, once again, to recognize that, because if we don't recognize it, we're going to become part of it. If we are not given the tools with which we can say, I need to make sure that I am not destroying the lives of others so that I can have small comforts and luxuries, you know, Otherwise, we will just accept what we're handed, and we will just live in a way that might be totally tyrannical from the point of view of other, of other nations, of other people, of other races, of other ethnicities. You know, uh, we have to recognize what our role really is in this world, and everything in this world, given the sophistication of trade and of technology, everything seems to conceal from us cause and effect. We forget what it is that we, uh, you know, that in the cell phone I'm talking to you on, for example, there are minerals that have to be extracted sometimes in situations that are absolutely barbaric and in, uh, involving child laborers or even in some uh, cases child slaves, you know, that kind of thing. We have to recognize that as being real and as being as real as our experience of this object, the cell phone that I'm holding in my hand which looks so slim and clean and perfect. What is the real cost of it being produced? What does it mean then that I am, that I am so comfortable using it? In book after book, I guess that is what I explore. And each of these projects leads me closer to understanding what that means emotionally when I am actually like a white guy in a first world country and therefore am by the necessity, or not the necessity of that, but by that situation, I am actually protected from many of the worst effects of what it is, of the way that I live. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that hopefully we're, um, with STEM education and STEAM education, we're trying to move in the direction of people at least understanding what their technology is and, and where it came from. Yeah, because when kids study the science behind this and, and indeed study the junctures between science and philosophy, say. So, you know, the moment at which kids say, okay, as we progress with AI, what are the moral questions involved in that? As we progress with weaponry, um, automated weaponry in a small scale or 
you know, catastrophic weaponry uh, and a, a larger like, sort of nuclear scale. As kids look at those things, they start to to realize, wait a second, we can make the decisions that are going to shape the future of the world. We can decide what is going to exist, what will not exist, what will be the community that we live in, what is the society, the culture that we will produce. And that's amazing. That's so important because you're looking at how things actually work instead of the lies and deceptions and even the truths that are, in some cases, like trivial truths that are told to us to hide from us the real effects of our decisions. So I think it's wonderful that kids are actually looking at the realities of these things and asking these questions for themselves, because it means that they're not going to get duped. They're not going to get fooled. In the same way that it's hard for someone of my generation to look at a smokestack pouring waste into the atmosphere and think, oh, I'm sure that's fine. It'll work out somehow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation did think that. They think, oh, the earth takes care of it somehow. You know what I mean? Like the sky's big. It's a big sky. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong? You know what I mean? But, you know, we have had a certain kind of education that now makes it impossible for that sort of uh, lie or that fudge to uh, to conceal things from us. In the same way, these kids who are studying this stuff now are going to have the tools to understand the world in ways that I cannot. And that's incredibly important and incredibly exciting. You just heard our interviews with Zach Gilbert and M.T. Anderson. And Kristen, I find it heartening that kids aren't being tortured by just reading textbooks and memorizing dates anymore. I love seeing the inquiry process used in social studies as well as science. I agree. That idea of questioning cultural norms and challenging the very nature of our reality is alive in the classroom and in science fiction. Essential questions lead to learning. Let your students ask questions, even the ones that make you uncomfortable. Who knows what they might discover and how they might change the world? Feed is our STEM Read selection for the fall. You can find lesson plans, games, and interviews with everyone from linguists to cybersecurity experts at stemread.com. Check out our show notes to learn more about our guests and their work. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.